Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Chad Middlebrooks, pastor of discipleship here at LNPC. And this episode is a Pillar and Ground questions episode, where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. We're continuing a conversation that Will Nettleton, our pastor of mission and worship, began on how we share the gospel in a changing world. And as we said before, we're leaning on a book that Will and I used for a Wednesday night elective back in the fall of 2022 called Telling a Better Story by Joshua Chatrow. And in the last episode, we explored one of the five challenging cultural assumptions that Chatrow says that people today live by that can make the gospel communication actually challenging for the believer. And just by way of review, those five assumptions that Chatrow identifies are the first, I don't need God or religion. Second, you have to be true to yourself, which is what we spent our last time looking at. Then third, the ultimate goal in life is to be happy. Fourth assumption, it's okay to be spiritual, but not to say that your religion is the only way or attempt to bring it into the public square. And then fifth assumption is we've progressed beyond faith and myths to reason and science. And we talked about how as Christians, we must play the long game in building relationships with non-believers, seeking to understand where they're coming from, which will involve being intentional in how we engage with non-believers. It will involve us being curious, asking a lot of questions to get to know where the person really is and where they're coming from. It will involve us needing to listen really well and often at times asking more questions and listening more than we're speaking. And it will involve us showing genuine care and concern for them because people don't want to be viewed as a project or as a problem to be solved. And we talked about as we continue to look at Chatrow's paradigm of going inside a person's story. We want to ask questions to go inside their story to see what assumptions that they are operating out of and what experiences have shaped their thinking and what they believe. And as we ask into their story, we want to seek to find common ground, things we can actually affirm and be in agreement with them on. But as will inevitably be the case, we want to begin to challenge some of their faulty thinking and beliefs, asking questions in a way that gets them to think about their, the plot holes, as Chatrell calls them, that we can see in their system of beliefs. And so asking open-ended questions similar to, I wonder what happens when, for example, suffering or injustice hits your life. How would that affect the way you operate and live life based on your beliefs and based on your assumptions? We want to take them outside of their story to the better story, to the gospel, to show how the gospel provides answers and framework for the way that life works best. And so whether we're dealing with matters of identity, trying to help them show the difference between living for an identity, which is an achievement-focused identity, earning and trying to, through your works and through your efforts to earn an identity, versus living from an identity that's given to us by Jesus Christ, who accomplished the work necessary to secure our identity and to secure our salvation before a holy God. Or whether we're talking about matters of morality, we want to challenge their views on morality as to who is the arbiter of right and wrong, if indeed the goal of life is to be true to oneself. Or what about matters of justice? If there is no God and self-actualization is the goal, why put any time and energy to sacrifice for another and to seek justice? Or when talking about matters of love, we want to help them to see that we only love because God reveals to us that he's the author and the creator of love. And so helping them to acknowledge that love involves self-sacrifice, which actually doesn't fit well within their belief system of being true to themselves. But as we seek to go inside non-believers' stories and help them to, to take them outside to show them the greater story of which their smaller stories are part, we will inevitably run into questions and run into objections that people will have to the gospel message. 
Again, it's important to be reminded that this apologetic is not a formula that Chatra is, is drawing here. Rather, it seeks to map the Christian story onto the prevailing assumptions, the prevailing observations and experiences of life that people have to help them see how Christianity makes the most sense of all the rival narratives. And in light of this, as we deepen in relationships with non-believers, we should gladly welcome their questions and even their objections. Because as many times it shows that they're thinking through, they're wrestling with the ideas and how they fit into the to or how they conflict with their current belief system. And as Christians, we need to learn to respond in a posture that instead of being defensive is one of humility, one of love, and one of winsomeness. Again, inviting them into the discussion, even with their questions. And the place where we want to begin is by asking questions and then doing a lot of listening. And for many of us, see, our propensity is to kind of back the dump truck of information and knowledge on top of the person, but that rarely proves to be winsome and rarely proves to be received well. So we have to be constantly prayerful, asking the Lord to give us wisdom so that we can correctly and lovingly apply knowledge in the gospel as we embody truth and express genuine love for the person with which we're engaging. And so Chatterall identifies three common objectives that as Christians we're likely to run into as we engage with non-believers. The first objection is Christianity is oppressive. The second objection is Christianity is an unloving story. Why would a God allow evil and suffering? Or third, Christianity is an untrue story, speaking to the Bible or miracles that can't be true. And so in this episode, we're going to discuss the first two of these objections. And we have to recognize that the gospel, the truth claims of Jesus Christ, to varying degrees is going to be offensive to many. Some people that we engage with may have strong reactions to the message that we're proclaiming. And that shouldn't surprise us, because we need to keep in mind that we are going to get pushback. We're going to receive strong reactions at times. And the Bible is replete with this, even in the book of Acts, when you see the early church and the persecution that took place because of the gospel, or Jesus reminding his disciples of how they would be persecuted and they would be opposed for the sake of his name. We also need to avoid becoming defensive when someone does object. It's important for us to be patient with the person and to seek to listen long and hard before we respond to them. And it's also good to ask simple questions, non-accusatory questions, So, for example, we can ask into, why do you say this or why do you think this? Have you experienced this yourself? Or even asking them, tell me more about what you mean by that statement. If someone objects to Christianity because they feel it's oppressive, for example, there could be a number of different reasons why they are objecting. And so we have to slow down and ask into their story to seek to understand where their true objections really lie. And in the book, Chatterall breaks down the idea of oppression into three categories, speaking of identity oppression, experiential oppression, and historical oppression. So let's take identity oppression first. Maybe the person is objecting because Christianity seems to be asking them to deny their most fundamental identity and desires and to live by a set of rules that seem outdated or oppressive in their estimation. See, many people want to boil Christianity down to a set of rules, even outdated rules at that, that restrain and that restrict our desires and our self-expression. And what we can acknowledge and empathize with them about their objection is that there are some versions of legalistic Christianity that we've been damaged by and that others have been damaged by. But we must use this opportunity to bring clarity and correction to their misconceptions of who Jesus is and what he calls his people to. And so we want to ask into their belief system, why do you think Jesus is oppressive and restrictive? And we can share what Jesus actually says, not what they might think he says, but never having looked to the scriptures. 
Because Jesus, in his own words, said that he didn't come to suppress or steal people's joy, but to actually free people from the bondage of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we can even give examples, specific examples, like John 10, where Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so we have to go into their story to help correct and help reshape their perspective of Jesus and his call. To show that Christ is inviting us to experience a life of true flourishing, freedom, and contentment, not one of oppression. And as we discussed on the last episode, some of the assumptions that non-believers live by, we must acknowledge these assumptions that, they, that lead to their objections. So to use the assumption of expressive individualism that we discussed last time, discovering and being true to oneself. Again, going into their story, we need to show how their assumptions fall short, and the gospel really is good news for us. We need to challenge them to consider several things related to their assumption. The first consideration to help them see is how the current self-actualizing, me-centered approach to life really undermines the most vital and life-giving relationships. And so if I find my relationship, whether it's with a spouse or a friend or a roommate, to be confining, why not find a new relationship that doesn't demand self-denial and sacrifice? Now, they might agree that there must be some level of self-sacrifice, but at what point does the sacrifice become too much and too confining? And if they acknowledge that self-sacrifice is necessary for life-giving relationships, for example, the way that they love their kids, we should affirm this and show how this is actually a signpost that aligns with more with Jesus and what he taught and what Christianity teaches. We can also help them to consider how impractical it is to flourish by looking only within ourselves. This is ultimately impossible, as we all know. The reality is we all look to those outside of ourselves to learn what we should value. The communities that we live in help to teach us all kinds of things, whether it's what to worship, what to pursue, what to hold as significant above all else, whether it's money or power or intellect or self. And so looking inwardly to oneself is not only impractical, but it's contrary to God's design to live in community in relationships with others. Furthermore, we can help them consider how our modern pursuit of freedom really is crushing. We can help the person to see, as Jesus taught us, every one of us has a master. There is something or someone that we build our lives around. And they can even be good things. We can make our career, our possessions, our money, our power, our comfort, our control, even our children and marriage, even good things, ultimate, where we place our hope and our fulfillment in these created things. But all of these created things, no matter what they are, they make really bad masters. And I think, for example, from the free love movement back in the 60s and 70s that preached that sexual liberation and freedom is what would bring fulfillment and happiness. Or even today in our culture where hormone therapy is being given to children and teenagers in the name of freedom. But these things are ultimately destructive because they are pursuing freedom in a place that will only lead to bondage and disappointment and hurt. And when we make anything other than God ultimate in our lives, we become enslaved to that thing no matter what it is because it cannot and will not make good on its promise to satisfy and fulfill. It can also be helpful to encourage the person to consider their relationships with others, especially those that they admire and hold most dear. If we consider, for example, our reputation to be one of the most important things in the world, we will tend to build our lives and our happiness around what other people think of us. So what happens is our lives feel inadequate and empty when a person rejects us or lets us down. And when we have to seek validation and security in our relationships, then we will base our value and our worth upon the last conversation that we've had with someone. 
Our identity becomes very fragile and changing, almost like a moving target. So relationships by nature have a confining element to them. And to a degree, they limit our freedom, as they should. So for example, if you're a parent and when you have a child, you're sleep deprived in in those first few months. You lose the free time that you once had. For a season, those quiet times of reading or exercise, they're interrupted because of the demands of the new child that is completely dependent upon you. And so seeking to be free from all relational limitations is crushing because it prevents us from receiving and giving the love that we were created for. So the answer for experiencing freedom is not removing any and all restrictions. Instead, for true freedom, we need the right restrictions that teach us to love the right things rightly and in the proper order. And so we need to take the person outside to the better story. And even though the mentality of the West is to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and to forge ahead in life, what we fail to see is how destructive this endeavor really is to how we were really created. Because Jesus came to show us the way to be truly human, which involves submission, just like he did with his Father. Jesus, the Creator, the owner of all things, humbled himself in submission to his Father and to his purposes. And as you often hear us say from the pulpit, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Jesus promised true freedom that only comes through submission. And he promises freedom by constraining us in his love. And as he says in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, freedom comes only as we submit by faith to Jesus Christ. But that kind of leads us to the million dollar question that we all want to know, which is how can we flourish in this life? How can we live the good life that we're after? Well, the gospel says it's not found through a set of rules or morals, but it's actually found in a person, in Christ a person we were meant for, and a person we were meant to be like. And so the commands in the Bible don't just point to themselves, they point to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The only one who can grant us forgiveness and offer true freedom. And so Jesus says, stop working for acceptance and love and contentment. Rather, work from my acceptance, my love, and my freedom so that you can reflect his character and be more fully human in the way that he's designed you to be. I think about Olympic athletes or even world-class musicians. They're incredible to watch and even listen to their talents as they play and create and improvise with such ease. But these talents, no matter how natural we might think them to be, they took years of hard work honing and refining their craft. And so they had to restrict themselves and they had to sacrifice a lot of other lesser freedoms in order to do what they think and feel is necessary to get better in their field. Well, in a similar manner, we want to help the non-believer to see that embracing Christ actually is not settling for lesser freedoms. It's not settling for a list of rules and duties. It's in reality experiencing greater freedom than anything else this world can offer. Because as we love God, we can love other things in a way that doesn't crush us when we realize that they let us down. We can actually enjoy the created things rightly as gifts rather than God's to serve. And so the key to true freedom is not to attempt the task of avoiding being mastered by something, but rather it is submitting ourselves to the one who we were made to love and serve and be mastered by, which leads to the freedom that our hearts long for. Which chapter also speaks to the objection of experiential oppression, when he says Christians claim to be about love and justice, but they're actually calloused and self-centered. 
As Christians, we can agree with non-believers that they have ample evidence to level at us as Christians for how our lives at times do not always line up with what we say we believe. But we shouldn't let this be a reason why we don't engage and evangelize someone. We should actually invite this comment or question related to hypocrisy. Because what the non-believer is really calling us to, to, as the believer, is to live out what we say we believe. And that is a good thing. As Christians, we know Jesus is the standard. Perfection. This is what a holy God demands of his people, and we all know that we fall short of that every day. But just because someone who claims to be a Christian doesn't, does something bad doesn't mean that Christianity itself is bad. Because in a similar manner, it'd be foolish to suggest that just because scientists have produced weapons of mass destruction or drugs that are used to torture or kill people, therefore we should discount any and all scientists for their works. No. In the same way, it'd be foolish to dismiss Christianity just because some Christians do evil things. This gives us as Christians an opportunity to share about the progressive nature of sanctification, of growing in God's grace that happens over time. It doesn't happen overnight. We will never reach perfection in this life. And I'm reminded of a video I saw years ago of a a man who was stumbling and falling on an escalator as the escalator was going up and he was continuing to try to stand up and he kept falling over. And it just struck me as a great picture of sanctification, that we are moving upward, but yet it is a painful and messy and oftentimes clumsy process as we grow in grace. God has ordained the church to be a hospital for the sick, for sinners who fall short of God's glory, which is what all of us are. And so we can and should readily acknowledge that the church hasn't done a great job welcoming the sick at times, those who maybe look different than we do, those who have different socioeconomic standing or different views on sexuality or political views. And while many skeptics and non-believers will have a strong distaste for hypocrisy, this shouldn't deter us from moving to the heart of the matter. I was at a family reunion this past summer and got into a conversation with someone who was really disgruntled about the hypocrisy in, in the church. And I ultimately ended the conversation having to ask this question and saying, I understand you're frustrated with hypocrisy, but what will you do with your guilt at the end of the day? Regardless of what you see going on around you in the church, where will you go with your guilt over your failures and your sin? That is the question we all must ask. Is the church a mess? Yes, but she is the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ, and he is renewing and redeeming her until she is perfected, and he is united to her in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we can show that not only is Christianity not oppressive, It is the only hope for experiencing the freedom that our hearts were designed to experience. We're moving to the second objection, as Chatros says, that Christianity, some people say, is an unloving story. There's suffering, there's injustice, there's evil in the world. How could a loving God allow such horrible things to happen? And again, we have to go inside their story and have them elaborate on telling us more about why they find suffering and evil such an obstacle to believing in God. And so we can ask him, was there a particular time in your life when you remember coming to this conclusion? And here at this point, I think we need to gently probe into their story to see, was there a particular event in their life or hurt or wound that has contributed to this thought? And however they respond, it will give you a better understanding of where their struggle really lies. Is it more of a logical problem of evil? Perceived rational contradiction that can't exist between a loving God and existence of suffering and evil? Or is it an experiential problem of evil, which is related to how people deal with the bad things that happen in their own lives or to those that they love? And Chatrow says this line of thinking often goes like this. If God allows suffering when he could do something about it, 
then he's not really good. And if he allows suffering because he can't do anything about it, then he's not really all-powerful. And on this objection, we can level the playing field by admitting that evil is a problem both for the Christian and for secular accounts. Chatrall says that we can explain how the logical objection on the basis of evil and suffering is ultimately unsuccessful. While secular solutions have a foundational problem that cannot be fully resolved without borrowing from other stories either. We as Christians should admit that a comprehensive reason for the whys of suffering are far beyond our pay grade. But what we can do is show them how their secular views fall short to account for the suffering and evil as well. Seculars have no clear basis on which to judge something as good or evil. One doesn't just assume these kind of categories. And as C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, he recognized that the categories of good and evil that he was using to form his objection required some kind of absolute standard to measure against. And if the Christian must answer the problem of evil, the atheist must also answer the problem of good and evil. And so we can ask the non-believer, if you believe in real good and evil, how do you ground such categories? And just because we don't know why God allows evil doesn't mean that such a being wouldn't have reason for permitting it. And so we must admit our finiteness and admit God's infinite nature. And then we go outside of their story. As Christians, we want to show how we believe that suffering is not only meaningful, but it can also teach and transform us into something magnificent. Think of Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 4, this slight and momentary affliction, he says, whatever that may be in our lives, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Again, referencing C.S. Lewis, he famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. And so we can confess to the non-believer that we understand pain and suffering not as a sign that the world is meaningless and arbitrary, but rather that it is broken and not the way it was intended to be. And it was us, it was man, it was our turning away from God in disobedience to sin that resulted in a distorted creation and death. And therefore, the reason why we pursue justice and shalom in the world is because justice and goodness have transcendent meaning. They actually matter to God and will matter for all eternity. The hope that we ground our faith in is the sure promise that there is a day coming when all wrong will be made right. This is why we can persevere as Christians in the face of suffering and pain. It's not that we are just born and you live and then you become worm food, as my professor Steve Brown used to say. There is life after death, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus, which offers a powerful vision that guards against both a a passive quietivism and an overwhelming despair in the face of evil. Now, some may say, well, I believe in a God, but I think we all just find our different way and have different journeys to get to the top of the mountain, but we're all going to the same place. But the problem with that, as among many other issues, is that each religion claims exclusivity. Even Muslims are citing the command to worship Allah every uh, day several times during the day. And Jesus doesn't leave room for this. For He himself says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And people may argue, well, what about genocide? What about the killing of innocent people? How do you reconcile putting faith in a God who allows this kind of suffering and torture? In leveling this objection and argument, the person is placing themselves above the mind of God, in essence, claiming intellectual superiority over God and His plans. And so we would want to ask them, would you acknowledge that there is a slight chance 
in his infinite and perfect wisdom that God is actually smarter than you and I and doing something ultimately good and glorious that we may not be able to understand from our finite vantage point. Because God is so much bigger than we are or can ever imagine. And so as we spend time with non-believers listening and hearing their objections, what happens is that over time we gain the right through our presence, through our conversations, our questions, to speak truth even when it may not be received by them. And that's okay. We must be patient and ultimately trust God to work in and through our conversations to plant seeds. We have the promise that the Spirit will accomplish His purposes through the Word of God. So what we're inviting people to is a life of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we should readily admit that we don't have, nor will we ever have, all the answers in this life. And we're trusting by faith in the God of the Scriptures who's proven Himself faithful over and over again to all of His promises. And so therefore we should prayerfully and boldly seek the Lord's wisdom to know when, what, and even how to share each time we engage with a non-believer. But at some point, we should boldly and lovingly call the non-believer to make a decision to embrace the gospel and to follow the Lord Jesus. Because as Chatras says at the conclusion of his book, the gospel should not only shape our apologetics, but as we step into the story, singing, reading, fasting, praying, and confessing the gospel, it will shape how we spontaneously imagine each moment of our lives. And as this happens, we will not only speak the truth, but we will embody the truth for which there is no greater apologetic. We hope through these last few episodes that you've gained not only a greater insight into how to engage the lost with the gospel, addressing underlying assumptions and common objections, but that you've also grown in desire to be used of God, to boldly live out the gospel in both word and deed, telling a better story in the lives of our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, family members, and classmates. And so may we never tire of telling the greatest story that's ever been told. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope that you will join us again for future episodes.